thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. We have explored the intersections between sleep and various other disorders such as Alzheimer's. One area that doesn't receive as much attention is the impact of sleep and sleep disorders in those with sickle cell anemia. A study published in Sleep and Breathing showed that children with obstructive sleep apnea and sickle cell disease had 47% more health complications than those without obstructive sleep apnea. These seem to be related to nocturnal hypoxia. Pain from a sickle crisis can certainly also lead to sleep fragmentation. Dr. Sonal Malhotra is here today to discuss the many ways she tries to optimize sleep for her patients with sickle cell anemia. She is a pediatric pulmonologist at Texas Children's Hospital. She is part of a multidisciplinary team treating pediatric patients with sickle cell anemia. She examines sleep as part of the comprehensive care of her patients and is here to discuss how sleep may be a modifiable factor to improve the overall care of this cohort of patients. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me about this clinic. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it is. It's. Uh, I feel very pampered that I'm in a clinic that is so um, comprehensive and takes care of these patients. Um, it was started in 2009 um, at Texas Children's Hospital in the Department of Hematology. Um, initially, we had one pulmonologist, one hematologist, and one hematologist NP to provide care for children, and we saw about eight children per month. Fast forward 14 years later, we have four hematologists, two hematology NPs, four pulmonologists, two double board certified pulmonary sleep medicine physicians, and we see 50 children per month across oh, three campuses. Yes. Wow. And we're trying to expand into Austin as well. So it has definitely um, been well received and um, we're all excited to keep going and expand to the Austin area as well. So which hat do you wear? Are you the peds pulmonologist or the sleep person or both? Gosh. So interestingly enough, I think I started out as more on the pulmonary uh, standpoint. Um, we, me and my colleague who's also sleep trained joined um, pretty recently and decided that or realized that there were so many sleep complications in patients with sickle cell disease. And it is directly impacting their overall health and quality of life. And so now we kind of wear both hats. Um, so we do pulmonary and sleep and actually our pulmonary colleagues and hematologists are also more uh, likely to screen these patients for sleep disorders, knowing the importance of it. Oh, no way. That's great. Yeah. So does is there something about sickle cell disease that puts you at higher risk for sleep disorders? Sure. I think it's, gosh, it's so complex. So Patients with sickle cell disease have a lot of disorders that mimic pulmonary and sleep disorders. Okay. So, and a lot of sleep disorders are have higher prevalence in the sickle cell disease population. We're not really sure why. Um, so patients with sickle cell disease have higher risk for having obstructive sleep apnea, RLS, and insomnia. And we find that they correlate with the severity of disease and mortality and morbidity. Oh, so it correlates with the severity of their sickle cell disease? Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. So we find that patients with obstructive sleep apnea um, are higher at higher risk for having acute chest syndromes, pain crises, visits to the ER, and overall just quality of life is dis disrupted. So you mentioned that the rest of the team sort of has this heightened awareness 
for obstructive sleep apnea and sleep disorders. And so it sounds like they are, you know, screened, but is there something that is the trigger for you and your team for, okay, I've, you know, asked these questions and then this person needs a sleep study? Yeah, absolutely. So as far as the screening goes, you know, the general, you know, pediatrician, definitely we, you know, have a lot of referrals from them who screen these patients for sleep apnea and, um, you know, any type of lung disease. But as you know, hematologists tend to be kind of their primary care provider at some point too. (laughs) They take on a lot, right? And so they take, you know, great ownership of their patients. And so our hematology team and us came up with, you know, a three point questionnaire that they can um, ask their patients. And if even one of them is positive, they go ahead and, um, refer them to the multidisciplinary care team. So if there's any child with cough, wheezing, or chest tightness uh, with sleep or exercise, if they snore more than three times a week or having pauses or gasping for air, or if they are having wheezing or dizziness with activity. Um, So those are kind of three things. Any of those are positive, they go ahead and come into the multidisciplinary team um, care. And so pulmonologists and hematologists see them together. And then we determine if they need to have a sleep study or not, which we're more, um, a lot more aggressive about getting sleep studies in this patient population, I'd say. Okay. So it's interesting because you're screening for pulmonary disease and sleep apnea, I mean, in the general population to sort of trigger that referral to your clinic. Correct. So are there other, so I'm thinking about sort of the traditional symptoms that we would think about and say, oh yeah, I think this person has sleep apnea, let's get a sleep study. Is there something unique with your population where you look at it and you're like, this is enough that makes me want to order sleep study? Sure. So, you know, Carol Rosen did a really great study in 2014. It was published in the Journal of Pediatrics. Um, she had a large patient population. I think that was one of the largest studies that was done in this patient population. And now we've just recognized it a lot more. And for me, it was just a very impactful study. But mm-hmm. she had around 243 patients that she looked at, um, her and her team. And they found that patients... Um, in the general population, pediatric population have one to 5% risk for having sleep apnea. And then patients with African-American descent had about eight to 9% um, risk for having sleep apnea. And it was even higher in patients with sickle cell disease. It was 10%. So they are, you know, disproportionately at higher risk for having sleep disordered breathing. Um, And the prevalence is really unknown. I, I would say that 10% 10% is what she found in other research articles, you'll see anywhere between five to 75% chance. So um, I think there just needs to be more studies, but interestingly enough, they found that habitual snoring and lower wake SpO2 were the strongest risk factors for OSA in this patient population. Oh, so how low is low? Yeah. So when any patient who comes in who has a SpO2 of lower than 94%, we go ahead and say, okay, I think that this patient needs to have a sleep study. Oh, interesting. You know, so you had mentioned something earlier about untreated sleep apnea putting you at higher risk for acute chest. And so where where my brain went with that is I'm like, okay, must have Mm -hmm. to do with like nocturnal hypoxia. Is that, is that true? You know, it makes sense to me. I mean, the, the, cells of sickle cell are most stabilized when they have oxygen saturations. And so when you have this 
you know, significant fluctuation in O2 saturations when you're sleeping, and even more when you have obstructive sleep apnea, it only makes sense. It's going to make these cells more unstable and at risk for having vaso-occlusive crises, pain crises, acute chest syndrome. Um, so it's really important to treat not only the obstructive sleep apnea component of it, but also the hypoxemia, because we know that patients with sickle cell, even with lower AHIs have longer time below 90% than other, other people. You know, and you had brought something up uh, before when we were chatting about the whole oximetry accuracy with skin color. Yes. So how, you know, because I'm hearing on one hand, you say if they have a saturation of 94% during wakefulness, um, and so I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, I know. Yeah. So how do you, how do you sort of reconcile that? Yeah. I think that, you know, there was that large study in 2020 looking at patients that, um, black patients were nearly three times the frequency of a cult hypoxemia that was not detected, mm-hmm. um, in relation to their white counterparts. And so there is a racial and ethnicity disparity in healthcare. And so when you see a patient with sickle cell, I think that 94% cutoff is there. Um, but you also have to take into account, you know, are, do they have recurrent acute chest syndromes? Do they have, you know, recurrent pain crises? Are they adherent to their hydroxyurea? And, you know, if they're just acting a little bit more severe in their sickle cell disease, despite having, you know, all these medications to help them, it really triggers me to say like, okay, well, I think there may be something else going on. Let's just screen them for obstructive sleep apnea. Let's get a sleep study and see what's happening. Oh, so you go right to sleep study. I do. Oh, that's okay. That makes sense. So then what about like pulmonary hypertension? Yeah. So pulmonary hypertension would be something that you find a little bit more in the adult patient population, but something we do screen in the pediatric population as well. Um, I think I'm just lucky that we are, I do sit in a clinic, which is surrounded by hematologists, pulmonologists, some that are, you know, heavily trained in asthma, some that are heavily trained in pulmonary hypertension and, and some with sleep. And so we really get to see a comprehensive view of these patients, both on a hematology standpoint and pulmonary standpoint. And we uh, screen patients with any sort of dizziness, um, endurance problems, problems with exercise. And um, if they have, you know, a history of acute chest syndrome, we do screen them for pH as well, because we do know that up to 30% of adults have pulmonary hypertension. um, And we know that patients who are younger and have a, you know, very severe disease processes are also at high risk. So we end up getting a, a echocardiogram on these patients. Is it that high in adults? I didn't realize that. I know. Yes. So where I did my fellowship, we had a pulmonary hypertension clinic and it was very sort of regimented, right? That you would do a sleep study and HIV test and the sort of autoimmune and blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. Like it was just um, very algorithmic almost. And so is that sort of the approach if you identify pulmonary hypertension that you would then sort of launch into that whole evaluation? Yeah, so we are trying to make a little bit more of that kind of 
same thing, you know, guidelines on what to do for these patients. And so we um, have monthly meetings between hematology and pulmonary on not only just talking about patients, but we predominantly talk about how can we better their care. And one thing we came up with was standardizing note templates, um, because I think there it's gosh, you can talk about so much and what are the main things that we need to concentrate on. And so we came up with a note template, hopefully that we can use throughout all three to four sites that we're at. Um, but also we're hoping to come, or we have started coming up with questionnaires that hematologists need to ask their patients to screen them for any pulmonary or sleep disorder. And then they get referred to our clinic. And then even within that, what questions do we need to ask to make sure that we're screening appropriately for all, you know, the three main things, asthma, pulmonary hypertension, and sleep disorders. Um, within that, if the patient has not already had a sleep study or a um, echocardiogram, we like to get an echo sometime in their teenage years and definitely before transitioning to the adult side. So we get a sleep study echo um, and PFTs on those patients who are in our multidisciplinary care team um, before they transition. Do they transition at 18 or do you hang on to them a little longer? Gosh. You know the you know the answer. <laughs> That's a tough one. Should we be doing it eighteen? Sure, um, but we like to hold on to our patients. Um, we luckily have a great transition team and um, adult colleagues who take care of these patients. So um, I think that's made it a lot easier. But you know, sometimes we keep it a little longer. <laughs> yeah, we had um, you know our cystic, of course, right? The cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not a pediatrician, so we, you know, had them for a long time in sort of on the adult side. Um, but yeah, they sort of are there. You're right that the word you used earlier about ownership, right? Mm -hmm. I, I feel like that for us, it was the cystic fibrosis population. We really had ownership of those patients. And so they would come to clinic. And if you're on the fence about, you know, like you would do their PFTs mm -hmm. and you would, you know, do your assessment. And if you're on the fence about whether they needed to be admitted or not, you know, we would always just say, hey, is your bag packed? And if the bag right. is packed, boom, <laughs> they were coming in. Like, yes. it was just such a good identifier, I think. I think that brings up a really good point. You know, when you compare cystic fibrosis with sickle cell disease, and I think this comparison happens somewhat often, mm. but maybe not often enough to bring or highlight the differences between the two. So we know that sickle cell disease is far more prevalent than cystic fibrosis, but we know that the funding that sickle cell disease gets on a federal level and on a private level is far less than what you get for cystic fibrosis. In fact, I think it's around three times. Wow. Less. I know. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Huh. So another area of disparity. Yes. Huh. So when you identify that a patient has sleep apnea, do they follow the same sort of pathway? Do you routinely recommend adenotonsillectomy or are there other things we need to think about because, you know, is this riskier in this population? Sure. I, you know, we treat them the same. Um, I send them to ENT. Sometimes we'll try, you know, Flonase, Montelukast and things like that, but more, more often than not, we'll send them to ENT and um, we work together with the 
our ENT colleagues and hematologists to come up with a good surgical plan preoperatively and postoperatively because they are at higher risk. So mm. making sure their hemoglobin is appropriate, make sure that they're hydrated, make sure that they have good pain control, things like that. Um, but we've had great success with that. And um, it's been really beneficial in this patient population to have a TNA and repeat sleep studies proves that it, it does help them um, a little bit. So we definitely try to decrease the severity of sleep disorder breathing, if not um, completely treat it, um, but also really making sure that the nocturnal hypoxemia is, mm. you know, resolved. And if not, then I'm quick to put them on oxygen to make sure that we're, we're treating that appropriately. I think oxygen is a lot easier to tolerate also than a CPAP machine. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I'm like, ah, you can't tolerate your CPAP machine. Sure. That's, that's probably optimal, but we have plenty of patients who have CPAP and supplemental oxygen. I was wondering about mm -hmm. um, about CPAP in this population. Yeah, I think it's great for obstructive sleep apnea. Um, just like any other, you know, patient population or pediatrics, you have those adolescents who are like, nope, not using it. <laughs> it's always a challenge. I can't say it's more in this patient population. It's just something we deal with. And so you kind of pick your battles. And for me, I, I find nocturnal hypoxemia to be a lot more worrisome mm. um, than the obstructive sleep apnea portion. Sure. In the ideal world, they'd be adherent using both 100% compliance, but right. you know, that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, and I was kind of thinking when I was asking about the CPAP, I was more thinking about peds in general, but you're right, you know, that there is probably, they probably have more significant nocturnal hypoxia. Um, mm -hmm. But I was just thinking about peds in general and, um, you know, because I'll see patients sometimes who had a diagnosis of sleep apnea when they were like, you know, 15 Mm -hmm. And then I'm seeing them now that they're, you know, 21 and they're like, yeah, I know. I didn't want to see that, <laughs> but now I do. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And you'll ask them, does it help you? Yeah. Well, why don't mm -hmm. you use it? I don't know. Well, yeah. I don't know. And, but once again, I feel very lucky we're in a, in a clinic where we do have a sleep psychologist also in our sleep. Oh, um, you do. Yes. It is wonderful. Um, so I, ship them off to her and she does a great job. Obviously it's a two-way street. You need patients and parents to be really on board with it. So sometimes that's challenging, but you know, we've had great su success with, with our sleep psychologist. Does she do like desensitization too, or is that separate? Nope. She does desensitization she as well. Does. Mm -hmm, I know we are very spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about sleep and sickle cell anemia. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Join colleagues and subject matter experts February 23rd through 24th for Sleep Medicine Trends 2024. Explore emerging technologies and innovations in sleep medicine that will enhance patient quality of care. Learn more at aasm.org forward slash events. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Sonal Malhotra on the intersection of sleep and sickle cell disease. So, you know, we talked about sleep apnea and acute chest and pain. And so I imagine pain, of course, you know, logically would lead to sleep fragmentation. And then that probably drives pain. Um, when I was a resident and a fellow, there always seemed to be a stigma about pain and opioids in this population. Has that gotten any better? Yeah, I I don't know. I'm sure it's gotten a little bit better, and I hope it's gotten a little bit better, but there is still a huge difference in disparity. So mm. 
Um, you know, patients with sickle cell disease in general have longer wait times in the ER and longer time in obtaining pain medications appropriately. Um, there's less number of physicians who are trained and willing to take care of patients with sickle cell disease. So this, you know, not only is decreasing their quality of life, but also giving them a huge mistrust in the healthcare system, which isn't that's horrible. <laughs> well, it's a huge problem, right? Because mm -hmm. then you delay going to the ER and then you're sicker when you get there. And yeah, it's a problem. And I think, and in, in not unique to this population necessarily, but just the whole general medical mistrust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's why I want to put an emphasis on really talking about having a multidisciplinary approach and having that ownership of your patients, but also that good communication. Um, some, they see the same faces each time. Um, and once you build that trust, I think they're more likely to reach out with, you know, whatever issues that they're having, knowing that they're going to be heard. Um, and that's what we do find in our, in our patient population. You know, the patients who come into our clinic, I found that they are you know, more adherent to their asthma medications. They're more likely to listen to you about their sleep disorders. I mean, to be honest, I would say sleep is probably the least of their problems a lot of times. I mean, although it is, you know, a big problem, yeah. but I think there's so many other things going on, right? Like it's not yeah. just them, it's their siblings maybe with sickle cell, it's maybe their parent with sickle cell. So it, it's tough, right? It's a tough disease to, to, fully treat, but I do think that sleep is a huge part of it. And there's, they're starting to learn that a little bit more. Well, and, and you've kind of hinted at this too, that there's this sort of domain, you know, the social determinants of health and how much of their sleep is, um, you know, disrupted by things beyond their control, you know, neighborhood noise or siblings or what have you. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I, I do, going back to your question, do you think pain plays a large role in it as well? And they're at higher risk for having restless leg syndrome, restless sleep, but also pain and neuropathy. And all of that, it's it's so hard to identify sometimes mm. RLS in patients with it just pediatric pain, patients in general, mm -hmm. um, let alone patients with RLS, right? Or with sickle, I'm sorry, with sickle cell disease. Um, they have pain crises and neuropathy and things like that, that can kind of mimic it. And so um, just really working with the hematologist and asking those appropriate questions and figuring out a good plan is, is really helpful. So that's really interesting. You know, like, how do you figure it out? Because ferritin is probably not as helpful. No, it's not. <laughs> so that is uh, the million dollar question, right? So how do we help these patients? And I think luckily um, some of the medications that help with neuropathy can also help with RLS. And so that's, that's pretty helpful. Um, so I think really doing a comprehensive approach and making sure we take care of their pain, their neuropathy, and then if they still have underlying restless sleep or RLS or, you know, excessive daytime sleepiness during the daytime, despite having normal number of hours of sleep and mm. no obstructive sleep apnea, you know, we, we start digging a little bit deeper, but you're right. Ferritin is not very helpful. It's not <laughs> at all. So it is challenging. And these patients do also have end-stage renal disease sometimes, which puts them at higher risk for RLS. So my gosh, it's very multifactorial. Oh, so you kind of hinted at something. So we talked about sleep apnea and insufficient sleep and RLS. What about central disorders of hypersomnolence? Yeah, I, I don't really see um, that being a higher uh, prevalence in this patient population necessarily. Mm. Uh, we see central sleep apnea 
occasionally, but usually it's a similar what we find in, in other pediatric populations of post-obstructive or with high obstructive apnea index and things like that. So um, I do have, you know, a couple patients who were working up for narcolepsy, but really nothing more than what I see in my general sleep mm. clinic. I kind of wondered if maybe thinking about that fell further down because there's so many other things to sort of, like you said earlier, there's so many, you know, complicating factors that if they have pain at night, their sleep is fragmented, then, you know, that partially explains the hypersomnolence. So how do you get to the point where all of that stuff is fixed and they're still sleepy and then you can start looking? Yeah, I, I will be honest. I haven't gotten to that point yet with any of my patients. There's so much to kind of treat, unfortunately. And I think because we're just now like starting to realize the importance of of Mm. all these things and there's such lack in research in this patient population. So there's not a lot of guidance. Um, But I do think, you know, and because they do have so much going on and we talked about like at home, they have many reasons to not be able to sleep properly, whether it's outside noise or, you know, not the most optimal, you know, space to or environment to sleep and poor sleep hygiene and stressors and things like that. So, um, yeah, you, you just have to kind of figure out, you know, the most important things and, and try to help them with their quality of life and how can we best approach it. So talk to me a little bit about some of the barriers to care. Yeah. So, you know, when you have patients with chronic diseases, such as sickle cell or cystic fibrosis, these patients really have to come into the clinic quite often. So I see them every three months in our multidisciplinary care clinic. Um, but hematology will see them once a month and these Mm. clinic visits aren't short, right? Like, I mean, they're here in our clinic for a couple hours getting, you know, their blood drawn, sometimes they need transfusions, we do PFTs, then they see, uh, you know, hematology, they see pulmonary, they also see, you know, social work and a, maybe a research assistant, things like that. So like, oh, it's, wow. it's long, it's comprehensive and great, but certainly takes out a lot of time out of the day for these patients getting out of school, as well as families taking off from work. So, you know, I can understand that that's hard to do. <laughs> and so I think that's one barrier to care is just the amount of time. Um, another is that they are usually have, you know, insurance issues. So usually they're Medicare and less than 70% of the doctors in the U.S. accept Medicare. Is it that high? I didn't know that. Yeah. So I just uh, looked it up um, according to the (laughs) CDC (laughs) because I was also curious. And yeah, it's it's 70% of doctors in the U.S. accept less than 70% accept Medicare. Medicare. Mm -hmm. So 30 plus percent don't. Correct. Oh, wow. Oh, that just, that kind of tugs at me. You know, I, and and this is probably true of everyone, right? We kind of remember our patients and I remember my patients that had sickle cell disease when I was like a a resident and a fellow. And now, you know, a hundred years later, (laughs) I still remember them. Yes. They, I think they impact um, your life when you take care of them quite a bit. So Mm -hmm. you remember those patients, you remember how much when you actually talk to them, how much of their pain, how much of their their disease is really affecting their life. I mean, especially yeah. those patients who have to come into the hospital often, who have, you know, pain crises and are labeled as those drug seekers. I mean, it's not just a 
physical pain, but it's very emotional too. And so it is really challenging for them to get the care that they need. And, and you remember that those are the patients you remember. Yeah. I remember we had um, a lady with cystic fibrosis and, and, you know, when you had CF clinic and you would admit and you'd admit to internal medicine um, and Mm -hmm. sometimes the residents would push back because they're Mm -hmm. like, oh, they look fine. They don't need to come in. And just that role of having to advocate for your patient and say, no, I totally get why you think that, but we see this, you know, decrease in their PFTs and they've lost weight and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, um, to really kind of push back a little bit on on behalf of your patient in, mm-hmm. in a logical way so that it's not just bullying, <laughs> right? Right, like, I know. I'm the fellow, <laughs> you must do what I say. Yes, but it has more... to be done. <laughs> yeah, well, because then you want them to also get it so they can continue to advocate for your patient while they're in-house, Right. Absolutely. And I think that's important is education. And it's not just educating our patients. It is very much so educating the healthcare system, other physicians, other, you know, pediatricians, sleep doctors, pulmonary doctors, you know, just how much this impacts their life. And so the more we educate them, I think less resistance there's going to be whenever they do come in and need help. Well, and especially if it's something that is sort of in your area. You know, like I haven't seen anybody with sickle cell disease in, I mean, probably since training. Oh, wow. And Yeah. And so until we had our discussion like last week, mm-hmm. it's been years probably since I've really given it a, you know, a, a conscious thought. Wow. And, you know, and that to me, I'm like, oh, that's not great. You know, but it's just not my, it's not my everyday. Right. That is interesting. Um, I think it's just become my everyday because I, <laughs> you know, I see it all the time. I, I'm in this clinic. I'm, yeah. you know, very invested in this patient population. So yeah, that's interesting. So you know, your your program sounds very robust, um, and I'm not sure that this is typical of most centers. So I'm wondering if you have advice for our sleep medicine colleagues who maybe you know would like to create something like this in in their area. Sure. I think it is very doable. Um, I wasn't around whenever they had first started it, but just seeing how much it's grown over the years gives me hope that this is something that can be put into place in a lot of um, academic centers. So I would say the first thing is just start having a conversation. Talk Mm -hmm. to your hematologist, talk to your psychiatrist, talk to your, you know, ER and hospitals and even starting that conversation in, in, taking care of these patients, maybe having a once a week discussion about your high risk patients um, is all you really need. And and knowing that, you know, once they are seen by the hematologist and they've been screened, that they have a place to go in pulmonary. It may not be in a multidisciplinary setting where they see mm. them together, but even if they see them separately, I think it's just collaborating and really telling your patients that you have you know, talk to their other doctors because they really put a lot of trust in their hematologists. And so if you can say like, you know, I've talked to your doctor and this is what we came up with. And what do you think about this plan is really the first step. And then Mm -hmm. I think over time, it becomes easier to integrate them a little bit more. Well, and you kind of wonder then, is that visit going to be shorter, right? Because then they're only seeing the one person and then maybe that's easier on them to get back to their lives. Right. But then they come into clinic twice. So it's two different days. So I don't, I don't know what's better. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's hard to tell. And it's probably hard to do remotely since you need to get blood. 
Yeah. So we've talked about that, um, doing more, you know, remote visits and things like that. And, um, I think on a, you know, hematology and maybe even sleep standpoint, it's, it's doable. We, you know, getting a pulse ox is very important too. So they'd still have to come in and get vitals, but if they can, you know, get their PFTs and blood work at the time that works for them, it does expedite things a little bit more. And so we can either do a more comprehensive clinic visit quicker, or we can do it remotely, which, you know, we've tried before, especially in the patients that, you know, are a little bit more stable are a little bit more, um, known to our practice. So do you ask your patients to purchase oximeters and use them at home? We don't. Um, I think, you know, even after having this discussion and reading a little bit more and understanding that there is such a, um, you know, disconnect disconnect, as well as, you know, the readings aren't always accurate Mm -hmm. and things like that. I think I've never really, you know, advocated for that in, you know, parents ask this all the time, you know, I bought this, I I did this. It's all the time. It's the first thing that they want. And if you don't give it to them, they're going to go get it. Right. And so I always tell patients that like, really understand how you feel. (laughs) You know, if you're having lots of pain crises, if you're having, you know, acute chest syndromes, you need to come, don't look at your oxygen saturation, just, just come on in. But you know, patients I put on oxygen, we, we give them a pulse ox automatically. So it's a little bit like the advice that we give people who have a consumer wearable, Right. Mm-hmm. Like like you figure out how you feel in the morning, not what Fitbit tells you, like how, right. <laughs> how it tells you you slept. Like you kind of how do you feel? check in. Exactly. Check in with your body. Like, how do I feel? So I, I love that. That's the same sort of idea of really um, sort of encouraging them to to sort of take stock and know mm-hmm. their body, because then maybe they will identify something earlier and then come in before it's, you know, a bigger deal. Right. You know yourself the best. (laughs) You have to kind of figure out what triggers you, what, you know, makes your sickle cell worse. And um, yeah, the pulse ox isn't going to be always the answer. And then it sounds like then they'll have a trusted person that will then listen to them when Mm -hmm. they say, yes, this this triggers my sickle cell. Yeah. Yes. I hear you. I'm listening to you. Yes. Yeah. So any final thoughts? No, I'm, um, you know, really excited that I was able to speak about this topic. I think it's really important and under-recognized. So thank you so much for having me and, and really being open to having a discussion about this. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service, And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.